Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Viren Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, essayist, and erasure artist Mary Rufel. Mary Rufel is the author of 10 books of poetry, most recently Trances of the Blast from Wave Books and her selected poems, which was the winner of the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America. She's also the author of a book of prose entitled The Most of It, the comic book Go Home and Go to Bed, and her much-beloved collection of lectures, Madness, Rack, and Honey, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. 
Mary Ruffel is also the creator of nearly 100 one-of-a-kind erasures of 19th century texts, some of which have been exhibited in museums and galleries, and two that have been reproduced and published as A Little White Shadow from Wave Books and Incarnation of the Now from C. Double Press. Rufel is the recipient of many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, the Robert Creeley Award, an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and a Whiting Award, and she teaches in the MFA program of Vermont College. Mary Rufel returns to Between the Covers to talk about her two latest books, two books of prose, both out in the last year, My Private Property from Wave, and On Imagination from Saraband Books' Quarternote Chapbook Series. The Boston Review says of Mary Rufel, as a verbal hunter-gatherer, Rufel is a barometer of our lyric listening. Her poems are sieves of consciousness, catching strangeness and mundanity, the overheard and the under the breath. Rufel reminds us how odd, synthetic, and arduous it is, the pursuit of this transmission of verbal fact and form. If you want to know how an early 20th, 21st century lyric poem gets made and how it is tethered to the rhetorics and resources of its time and place, start here. Lithub says that Mary Rufel is the best prose-writing poet in America today. An essay daily adds, I might say us dreamers have gotten a hold of the essay form. I might speak about how Mary Rufel's prose explores the varied experience of singular feeling, feelings within feelings, braiding feelings, feelings slipping into other feelings, feelings inflecting feeling, feeling chasing feeling. I might talk about how Mary Rufel's prose makes you laugh aloud and in the same breath breaks your heart. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mary Rufel. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here in grumpy Portland. (laughs) Hope we can put a smile on Portland's face today. I hope so, too. Um, Gee, that stuff that you just read, other people talking about my work, I'm unfamiliar with all of that. And um, I didn't make it, is it up. So we oh, <laughs> that's funny. But um, it's so strange to hear that stuff because when I hear it, it's like they're talking about someone else, not yeah. me. You know, so that was that was a strange place to to begin. Wow. Well, let's let's stay in the strange for a minute. Yeah. So um, I know that you're not particularly interested in how your work is classified. That's not something that is of particular concern to you. And nevertheless, my private property is harder to classify, or people are having a harder time classifying it than your poetry collections. People have called it yes. short essays, brief lectures, paragraph poems, mm-hmm. flash fiction, biographical mm-hmm. nonfiction, lyric essay, philosophy, mm-hmm. memoir. But the reason I bring it, bring it up is around this issue of compartmentalization and the desire to classify in relationship to this book. Mm -hmm. Because one of the themes that it seems like you explore in My Private Property is that of growing older. And in your description of growing older, you portray life as becoming less compartmentalized. And I was wondering if you could talk a little... Oh, that is true. That that is true. I I feel that in my own life. I'm not sure I feel that in my writing, but then again, you just made a connection that I've never seen before because I don't think about my writing. I just write it. Yeah. Um, But that is true. Um, Okay. When I look at this book, My Private Property, I see that everything has a right flush margin, so 
to my mind, which is very, I have a very simple mind, it's all prose. That's what it's doing together because it's not lineated. Mm -hmm. But within that, I see prose poems. The color pieces are clearly prose poems. I see essays, pause as an essay, and the longest piece in the book, the title piece, My Private Property, is obviously an essay. Mm -hmm. You know, they're nonfiction essays. And then you have pieces that are like short, short stories. And my example would be The Gift, very clearly a kind of a story. Um, I'm trying to think. And another example of a, of a story uh, uh, might be The Woman Who Couldn't Describe a Thing If She Could. It might be um, observations. No, observations on the ground would be an essay. But I can go through and I can say to me, I don't care. Yeah. You know, essay, story, prose, poem. Essay, story, prose, poem. But so if we, I see those three things. But if we were to step back from the book and look yeah. more at you exploring, oh. um, growing older and yeah. the disappearance of of compartments as an experience yes. and the sense of life being more unified. Yes. Can, that, you, can you speak a little bit to, to that yes. phenomenon? When I was young and younger, I had what I would call a compartmentalized life. I had a job, work, whatever job I happened to have at that time. I had school, if I was in school or if I was, te I don't know. I had my inner life as a writer. Then I had my life with my family playing the role of daughter. You know, there was family. Then I had intimate rela relationships with others. So there was the relationship world and there was the family world and there was the work world and the school world and the inner world and the world of writing. And then there's also the public world of writing, you know, poets call it po-biz, you know, and then there's that. And they were all rather compartmentalized. And I think for me as an artist, my life has not consciously, but nonetheless evolved towards, thankfully, a unification of all these different compartments so that now it all seems rather seamless and everything feeds everything else and it's osmosis to go from one to the other. I'm not stepping out of one and into another. I'm just kind of swimming uh, between uh, different temperatures of, of water in, in the same lake body. Mm. Um, and I, I love that. And I hope that all artists reach that point. Um, it's sometimes difficult to maintain. But it's very hard to reach that when you're young. First of all, um, even if you have your own family and your parents are still living, you it's like two families, you know. And there, there's great freedom in the, in the death of your biological family. Oh, this, I know how grim this sounds, but I'm, I'm just putting a different spin on it. Um... And you also learn intimate relationships that, uh, you know, I'm a teacher. I read the, the poems of 20 and 30-year-olds. It consumes them. They are consumed by that search for happiness. And it takes years to understand that that comes and goes and you're never going to find what you're looking for and it's not going to turn out to be what you think it will be or expect it to be. 
Um, anyone past a certain age knows knows that, but it's something that has to be lived. You can't look at a 20-year-old and, and tell them you really should be out there looking at birds and stones and rocks and writing about other things. You can't do that. Because I, too, was consumed when I was 20 with, with that. Right. I didn't have the life experience to um, shove me in the right direction. And so, uh, yeah, that, oh, oh boy. So I, I, I agree with you, yeah. Well, let me yeah. ask a, a question around that, because this mm-hmm. sense of unification, mm-hmm. and then also I would say, there's a sense of wonder and play that often gets evoked mm-hmm. in, in your writing mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people might um, attribute to childhood, like the sense mm-hmm. of play, the sense of unification, the sense of being in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like what you're describing is something really different. It isn't, doesn't feel to me like it's a return to like a childhood experience. But, mm-hmm. but what do you think about no, that? No, but a very young child, until you get to school, your life is not compartmentalized. It really isn't. It's not. But as soon as you go to school, you then have your school life and your home life because your parents are not there with you in kindergarten or first grade. Mm. And you suddenly, your interaction with your peers and your teachers, already there's the beginning of two worlds. So I would say up until first grade, a child has a, a, a seamless unity yeah. of existence. Um, and I am, it, it, it's obviously, it's different for me now, but I try to maintain, no, oh, that's the wrong word. I don't try to maintain. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, you know, there is a, a seven-year-old girl inside of me and wonderful things can come of that and also extremely immature uh, negative things. Mm. Um, but I do, I love to play. I know how to play. I still play. It's not something I gave up. There's a wonderful anecdote. I think in the, on, I think I tell this anecdote in On Imagination where there's a little girl whose daddy teaches art or painting at a college, and she says, what do you do all day? And, he's, and he th- thinks about it, and he says, I teach people how to draw. And she says, people forget how to draw? Right. You know? <laughs> and uh, lately I actually heard another story where a little girl had a, a father who was a therapist, a psychotherapist, and said, what is it you do all, all day? And he thought about the best way to tell this to a child, and he said, I teach people how to... Uh, wonder and her response could well be people forget how to wonder <laughs> you know <laughs> right. so um Those are yeah. Great. yeah well there were a couple other there was another piece in on imagination and 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 pr- my private mm-hmm. property that remind me of this dynamic one is the line in my private property in the beginning you understand the world but not yourself and when you finally understand yourself you no longer understand the world yeah, that's in the very the opening piece, a little golf pencil. Yeah, yeah. and then in on imagination, there's sort of a, a maybe a kindred sentiment. Um, you talk about when you were younger that you're interested in many of the same things as your students, mm-hmm. but as you aged, you now aren't interested in most of the things they are. Oh, that's a problem for every aging teacher. But that at some, but you actually um, had a 
a friend point out something that was maybe complicating this, which I thought was really fascinating. That other, she said that other people have never been interested in the things that interest you, mm-hmm. but when you were younger, you didn't understand that they weren't interested in the same things. But as you got older, you didn't become more isolated. You just became wiser about the isolation you always had. Um, that is a true remark by a, a very dear old friend of mine, and it it struck me when she when she said those words to me because I. I I immediately intuited how true they were. Um, you know, I'll just speak about poetry in, in ways that poets aren't supposed to talk about it. But th- the truth of the matter is, you know, when I was young, I just, it never occurred to me that the world was not interested in poetry. I mean, I just thought it was the most important thing in the world, which is a good way to get into it and a good way to be in it for a while. But the older I get, the the more I am aware of it as nobody, nobody reads poetry. And you can point to the academic programs, you can point to summer conferences, you can point to readings, you can point to publications and presses and I get that, but that is a self-created and sustaining audience. Nobody actually reads poetry in this country. I'm speaking about the United States of America in 2017. And the more that dawns on you, you I mean, this is, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but there are mornings when I, (laughs) when I say to myself, what was I thinking? Why didn't someone sit down, look me in the eye when I was 22-year-old and say, you're out of your mind. Whatever you do, don't become a poet. You know, my father tried to tell me that, but he, I was never going to listen to him. And now I feel I should have listened to all these people. And now I... Okay, first of all, I will, everything I'm saying, you have to understand when I say I, I don't mean me. <laughs> so I cover, cover myself that way. So I do have these days, and I am writing more and more prose. And my prose, more and more people read the prose. They, more people read the prose than the poetry. And um, I would say to myself, I don't, con- I don't set out to write poems anymore. But they come on their own, uninvited. Mm. And I'm always saying, go away, go away. But it's a natural part of my being, and I can't stop it. Yeah, They're there with me whether or not, my poems are there with me whether or not I want them to be, whether or not I'd rather be doing something else. They're there. And I let them be, and I welcome them in. But everyone is uninvited. <laughs> everyone wow. is uninvited. The prose pieces, I kind of try to invite and yeah but the, the poems come uninvited but i can't stop it oh well that's a, well, you, a you, lot of nonsense but but you mentioned how you feel like people more people are reading your prose and before yeah. we we started recording mm-hmm. we were talking about pause mm-hmm. so maybe this would mm-hmm. be a great time to read it because you talked about how unanticipated of a large response that you received. Oh, in, in, that's true. In For, I was getting this. letters from women. Um, I'm going to find it here. Bear with me, Portland. 
I'm flipping pages of a book. Here it is. So this is a, a, a an essay, and it's called Pause. And before the essay begins, reprinted in the book, in facsimile, is a page from a, a notebook that I kept, and it's a cryologue. And a cryologue, uh, I think I made that word up. I don't think you'd find it in a dictionary. But a cryologue is just a log uh, of entries of how many times I cried um, in April of a, of a specific year. I know specifically the year, uh, April 1998. And on the left-hand margin, it's, you know, M for Monday, 2 for Tuesday, W for Wednesday, and so on through Sunday. And then it starts over again, and it, it keeps going. And for some reason, even though it's April's cryologue, there's f 58 entries. And then next to the day, it's C for cry times 3, no NC, no cry. C times three, C times three, C times one, C times two, C times two, C times, and it goes on and on like that. I think the the highest number is four, uh, crying four times. So this cryologue precedes the piece I will now read to you. Pause. I recently came across an old cryologue that I had kept during the month of April in 1998. C stands for the fact I cried. The number of Cs represents the number of times I cried, and NC indicates that I did not cry on that day. The saddest thing is I now find the cryologue very funny and laugh when I look at it. But when I kept it, I wanted to die, literally to kill myself, with an iron, a steaming, hot, turned-on iron. This was not depression. This was menopause. Reading this or any other thing ever written about menopause will not help you in any way, for how you respond to menopause is not up to you. It is up to your body. And though you believe now that you can control your body, such as your strength after all that yoga, you cannot. Of course, you may be lucky. I know a woman who experienced menopause in no way whatsoever except that one day she realized it had been a couple of years since her last period, which was indeed her last. You hear a lot about hot flashes, but hot flashes are the least of it, totally inconsequential in every way. You get as hot as a steam iron at odd moments, so what? The media would have you believe that hot flashes are the single most significant symptom toward which you should direct your attention and their products. But when I think of menopause, I don't think of hot flashes. I am not here to talk about hot flashes. Except to tell you that they do not cease even after you have completely gone through menopause. They become a part of your life the way your periods were. They are periodic, and after a while, you stop talking about them. No, I am here to tell you that one woman, a woman who is the most undepressed, optimistic, upbeat person I know, awoke one morning and walked straight into her kitchen and grabbed a butcher's knife, she is a world-class cook, with the intent of driving it through her heart. That was menopause. If you take the time to peruse the annals of any 19th century asylum, as I have, you will discover that the cause of admittance for all women over 40 is listed as cessation of menses. 
Sometimes I saw the words change of life, which sounds like a euphemism, but isn't. In other words, you go crazy. When you go crazy, you don't have the slightest inclination to read anything Foucault ever wrote about culture and madness. It may be that you recall your 13th year on Earth. Menopause is adolescence all over again, only you are an adult and have to go out into the world every day in ways you did not have to when you were in school where you were surrounded by other adolescents, safe or relatively so, in the asylum of junior high. You are a 13-year-old with the experience and daily life of a 45-year-old. You have on some days the desire to fuck a tree or a dog, whichever is closest. You have the desire to leave your husband or lover or partner, whatever. No matter how stable or loving the arrangement, you want out. You may decide to take up an insane and hopeless cause. You may decide to walk to Canada or that it is high time you begin to collect old blue china, 3,000 pieces of which will leave you bankrupt. Suddenly, the solution to all problems lies in selling your grandmother's gold watch or drinking your body weight in cider vinegar. A kind of wild forest blood runs in your veins. This and other behaviors will horrify you. You will seek medical help because you are intelligent, and none of the help will help. You will feel as if your life is over, and you will be absolutely right about that. It is over. No matter how attractive or unattractive you are, you have been used to having, to having others look you over when you stood at the bus stop or at the chemist's to buy tampons. They have looked you over to assess how attractive or unattractive you are, so no matter what the case, you were looked at. Those days are over. Now others look straight through you. You are completely invisible to them. You have become a ghost. You no longer exist. Because you no longer exist, you will do anything for attention. You may shave your head or dye your hair or wear striped stockings or scream at complete strangers. You've seen them, haven't you? The middle-aged women screaming at the attendant in the convenience store. You are a depressed adolescent who sweats through her clothing and says terrible things to everyone, especially the people she loves. You begin to lie. You have the urge to shoplift, and if you drive an automobile, you have the urge to ram your car into the car in front of you. Nothing can prepare you for this. The one thing no one will tell you is that these feelings and this behavior will last 10 years. That is, a decade of your life. Ask your doctor if this is true, and she will deny it. Then comes a day when you see a woman, that's in quotes, who is buying tampons and you think of her as a girl, and she is. Anyone who has periods is a girl. You know this is true, and it is very funny to you. You are a woman. The ten years have passed. You love your children. You love your lover. But there are no longer any persons on earth who can stop you from being yourself. You have put your parents in the earth. You have buried the past. Of course, in the meantime, you have destroyed your life, and it has to be completely remade, and there is a great deal of grief and regret and nostalgia and all of that. But even so, you are free, free to sit on the bank and throw stones and feel thankful for the few years or one or two or one or two decades left to you in which you can be yourself. 
even if a great many other women ended their lives, even if the reason they ended their lives is reported as, as having been for reasons having nothing to do with menopause, which is thankfully behind you, as you would never want to be a girl again for any reason at all. You have discovered that being invisible is the biggest secret on earth, the most wondrous gift anyone could ever have given you. If you are young and you are reading this or hearing this, perhaps you will understand the gleam in the eye of any woman who is 60, 70, 80, or 90. She cannot take you seriously, sorry, for you are but a girl to her, despite your babies and shoes and lovemaking and all of that. You are just a girl playing at life. You are just a girl at the edge of a great forest. You should be frightened, but instead you are eating a lovely meal, or you are cooking one, or you are running to the florist, or you are opening a box of flowers that has just arrived at your door. And none of these things is done in the great spirit that they will later be done in. You haven't even begun. You must pause first, the way one must always pause before a great spirit, if only to take a good breath. Happy old age is coming on bare feet, bringing with it grace and gentle words and ways that grim youth has never known. We've been listening to Mary Rufel read her piece, Pause, from her latest book, My Private Property, from Wave Books. Um, I think there's a typo in that. Sorry. <laughs> I think that on that last penultimate paragraph, you must pause first. The way one must always pause before a great, I think it should be endeavor or task. And what the, does it the say? Word, it says spirit. You must pause first. The way one must always pause before a great spirit. I mean, it kind of works, but I don't think I wrote that. It's funny. I'm wow. gonna, I just noticed it. That's yeah, all. It's that's, no big deal. That's fascinating. That's actually. okay. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, folks. But <laughs> we'll probably get that the, part the out. The <laughs> minutia of being a writer, you, you know, every little word you get all upset about. Yeah. And, you know, now that I've read that, this was written, uh, wow, 10 years ago or something. Okay. Now that I've read that, when I read it now, when I'm reading it, the bit, all the stuff about invisibility I don't think of a man, of a woman going in the middle of menopause. I now think of the elderly and the aged because I'm at this cusp. I'm 65. I'm at this cusp where when I see someone who's 85, I do still, there's a bit of invisibility that they have for me. Mm. You know? It's like... No one is invisible up to about 75, but over 75, and I see now, and I'm well aware of this, the, in, the invisibility of the elderly, which I'm very much facing and aware of, and it gets transformed. That's what I was thinking while I was reading it, the bit about invisibility. Yeah. So it shifted. Um, it sh shifted from the invisibility of a middle-aged woman to the invisibility of the elderly. Yeah. Which, who, our entire society treats them, you know, and, and they're the fastest-growing segment that we have. You know, see how I just referred to them? They. Right. I mean, that's very hypocritical of me, given that I wrote this. 
Um, so that's what's on my mind. My mind now is the end game, as it, and also this tension between invisibility being a blessing and a curse. Oh, absolutely, a blessing and a curse. And you know, the, you know, when you're little, and you, if you're lucky enough to have a grandparent, I mean, your grandparents, your grandparent, but you don't see them as people. The young don't see the elderly as people. And the fact is, they're one of the richest resources of knowledge on earth, you know. Um, And they've lived through wars. (laughs) They can tell you. Anyway, it, it makes me shiver. Yeah. You had this conversation with the poet Kava Akbar. Oh, yeah. He um, was a sweetie. And he's in his mid-20s. And, yeah, and his yeah. age came up as, as part of the content uh-huh, in this because uh-huh. you were talking about reading, um, aging, memory, and um, what books to keep and what books to get rid of. Oh, yes, yes. And he was talking, I don't, I don't remember the context of this, but he was talking about imagining you as this great devourer of text. And Mm -hmm. somehow you you both were talking about sheep grazing in the grass Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. um, reading all these books was like eating. Mm -hmm. But you had had said to him that um, when you get older, you realize how many of the books that mean so much to you as you're reading them are completely irretrievable. Like you can't remember them. I can't remember things. They were food at the time, Mm -hmm. but they are, um, they're gone. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if there was... That's another form of like invisibility, perhaps. But I was wondering if with aging and then the idea of figuring out, well, what books would I want to read or what books would I want to reread or do I even want to read at all? Are these questions becoming, do they feel like they have more of a premium on them essentially around around um, this discovery around memory and, and, the, and the reading you've done in the past? Well, I read for the experience of reading. Um, reading is a kind of ecstasy for me if I, if I love what I'm reading. And I read for the experience of it. But when I was young, even though I was having that experience, part of me thought, you know, I was reading to learn. Not necessarily informational knowledge, although certainly I, lo- I love reading science books and history books for that. But I was to, to devour, to 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 say I've read everything Proust ever wrote, you know, um, to learn in, in detail what thir- 12th century Japan was like. Uh, and now it's that stuff's going to go in one ear and out the other. And um, I read for the experience of reading, which is uh, either you're filled with the horror and, and terror of man's inhumanity to man um, and it, which is, we must never, ever lose, ever lose sight of. I try to, I read uh, Holocaust memoirs uh, once a year. I mean, that's a ritual. Um, and then I read these novels I love. And I read for the experience of reading as a way to want to pass my final days on earth. But I don't read to remember anything. And it's funny. I was putting together a little talk. I never finished it. I haven't given it. I had notes towards it. And the talk was going to be about, um, we just, we don't remember anything we read. So what's the big deal we, you know, we make about it? You know, 
tell me right now the entire plot of War and Peace, if you've read that. Or let me pick another, you know, pick some novel that everyone in the room's read. Tell me the plot. Oh, could you please, uh, what's the main character's name in Kafka's America? You know, blank, 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 you know? Um, well, uh, that, so take that a little further. Yeah. You have you have two pieces in my private property, and one called "Take Frank," mm-hmm. about a boy who would prefer oh, yeah. prefer not to read. Right. And right. then you have another, "The Hooded Dream of Dining," mm-hmm. about a guy who doesn't love poetry and would rather not think about it. Mm-hmm. And in both of these pieces, the characters seem happier for either not reading or not engaging with it. Um, and they remind yeah. me of a piece that you have in your mm-hmm. in your prose book, the most of it called "The Illiterates." Uh, where you wonder who has the greatest pleasure, the literate or the illiterate. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so all three are playing with this tension mm-hmm. between living and the representation of living, or, mm-hmm. or maybe even um, around the pleasures of, of reading versus not reading. But I was wondering what compels you to to um, create these characters that refuse the word. Well, thinking about it, you know, there... A part of me believes that the great answer to so many problems in this world is education, and it's the single most important thing, is to educate people honestly and fairly about uh, the history of this planet, both the natural planet and our species on it, and education, 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 um, which is ever-widening the circle of brotherly love. But then there's another part of my mind, which is like reading, 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 reading. Oh, we get so proud of all we've read and literary types were this, were this little niche. And the truth, the truth is being out in the middle of nature and feeling the wind through your hair, isn't that what it's all about? <laughs> Everybody can experience that. What What's with all this reading? You know, I have very close friends who are not readers. And, and sometimes I think they inhabit this planet more fully and really and completely than I do. Hmm. And, and we talk about, you know, we, I have other friends who we talk. Anyway, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. This art business is complicated. Well, okay, so when I was thinking about this question Mm -hmm. in relationship to your work, it made me think about something that the poet Jory Graham said, and Mm -hmm. I I was just curious Mm -hmm. about your thoughts about it. I'm not Mm -hmm. suggesting you share this sentiment or not. Oh, she's so smart. I want to hear it. But um, in relationship to living, the question of language and being present to the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So she says, how does one separate the acts of human will from those very acts of observation the poems undertake? There's moral entanglement there. Is there a way of taking in the world that is not manipulative? All of that containing an attempted carrying seems like a salvational gesture, but what if it's too late? What if the only thing left for us to do is to lift our hands off altogether, rather than even trying to use hands with goodwill? I'm not really sure. It's a hard place to write past, if you understand what I mean. Writing is a hands-on operation. Writing, thinking, feeling all hands-on. How do you write to do less damage? How do you write to let the world get away from us? Uh, she is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, she just articulated what I've been trying to 
you do, you, I mean, if you think about this and you write long enough, you, you come to those very questions, you know, hands-on, hands-off, you know, are, you know, are you going to just observe or do you have to describe? And does the description, is it necessary? Is there a more, oh, I, she said it. She, she nailed it. Well, do you, yeah. I don't know if you remember talking when you won the, uh, an interview for the essay prize, you talked about entity versus identity with Gertrude Stein. I did. Do you don't remember this? No, in one ear, out the other. <laughs> Everything I say and do still That's for myself, awesome. too. Okay, entity and entity. It sounds interesting. Well, what the, did I say? Yeah, so, so this idea that, um, which kind of is in line, I think, a little bit with this Jory Graham conundrum, that we have both an entity and an identity, and that w- w- a lot of our suffering comes from confusing the two. This is a Ger- Gertrude Stein's oh, yes, assertion. yes. That yes. an entity is an entity but has an identity, Mm-hmm. But the identity is bestowed bestowed upon us. Um, it's given to us socially. But that language is in this weird confusion also, not just people, because language gives us a sense of self, but also gives us a sense of identification. So when we're given a name Absolutely. as a kid, something d- is diminished in that also. And we're all, as writers, trying to reach entity. We're trying to cr- create or recreate entity on the page or, or reach it. And we, what do we end up doing? We end up creating identity as a writer, a style, a sound. <sighs> yeah. And, you know, entity is what it's all about. I mean, en- entity is standing out there in the, fi- in, the, in the field and the wind. And it's identity and the ideas of identity that cause all our our problems uh, with uh, the, the insane stuff that still goes on with between races and cultures. That's all identity. Mm-hmm. Sexual, all, all the politics is tied to identity. None of it's tied to entity. Mm-hmm. We're all living beings who will die. And we're given senses with which to feel the world around us. You know? How about we... Um, do the hooded dream of dining oh, as, that would, yeah, that as, would be a, nice. as a next one. That would be nice. The hooded dream of dining. Alice loved poetry. John loved poetry. Mary and Michael and Susan loved poetry. They went to a restaurant to sit together at a table and talk about the thing they loved. In walked David, who did not love poetry. He sat by himself at a small circular table where he could hear other people talking but not what they were saying. And after he ordered, he sat dreaming of mountaintops, of standing on a mountaintop looking down on the valley below, of watching a river snaking in the distance, of the wind in his hair. Still, being in a restaurant dreaming of mountaintops, he might as well have been fishing for pine needles. So David thought about his wife who did not love poetry and did not love mountaintops, but loved red thread, which she collected for no reason and to no purpose. David thought of the time he stole a few strands from her desk and threw them in a stew he was making to surprise her, but when he ladled the stew into her bowl and watched her eat it, it was apparent she didn't even notice. Still, a few hours later, she seemed inexplicably happy, so he closed his eyes and thought of that. 
been listening to Mary Rufel read from her latest book, My Private Property from Wavebooks. So last time when you were here giving a, a talk for mm-hmm. Tin House in Portland yeah. State, um, you talked about your love of narrative addiction and your love of uh, Canal Scards, My Struggle, that you, oh, were, yeah. you were deeply in at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just mentioned uh, earlier in this conversation that... Um, you're moving more towards prose. You're inviting prose into your life. Yes. And it made me wonder about something that you said in Madness, Rack, and Honey about making a poem. And I wondered how much of this is entirely different from or similar to what you're doing when you do uh, an essay or a mm-hmm. short story. But mm-hmm. you talked about how when you write a poem, the lines aren't speaking to the reader. They're speaking to each other, mm-hmm. that you're essentially creating mm-hmm or completing a dialogue yeah. between lines on the page that there isn't really a sense of an audience. Right. Um, and I wondered if that was also true with when you switched to essay or whether audience becomes a much bigger issue. It doesn't become a, that much. It becomes an issue. There's more of a, a sense of an audience in prose because it is, it is public. It is public in ways in which we can say poetry is private. Now, obviously, you can argue with that. You can take an, a deeply an interior mo- a, a novel an entirely built over an interior monologue. You can take an oratory poem, which is addressing uh, the public. But in general, prose is public and poetry is private. And that is a general distinction that has always haunted me, always haunted me. Mm. Um, but... I think when I was talking about the lines of a poem being in dialogue with each other, you know, I was talking about structure. I was talking about architecture, and there is architecture. There's no difference in, in art making. There is always structure. There has to be, or, or nothing would exist without it. We couldn't differentiate it between whatever surrounds it. And architecturally, all artists in all, all mediums are up against the same the same thing. I might change the wording a little, a little bit, but I, it's architecturally. I'm I'm always, always the same thing. Yeah. Uh, at the same time that you are right, there is more of an audience. You you prefer. mentioned in in Madness Rack and Honey very briefly that you were once a student of Bernard Malamute. Yeah, I was. Was were you writing prose with him? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I was. Huh. It was uh, like short story stories. What, stories. what was? Do you have any? Do any anecdotes come to mind of, of yeah, studying the, under the him? The only anecdote I have a kind anecdote about him, but the, I, the only anecdote I have is, uh oh, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> he brought to class. I was an undergraduate. He brought. And he had a little writing workshop for people writing stories. And he brought one of his own stories to class. And we had to read it. And then he talked about it as an example of, like, how a story should be written. And I just, I even then thought it was egregious. Yeah. I'm not sure what that word means, but it sounded right. I mean, I would never do that. I suppose there are writers who do that today, and I don't want to know who they are because, I mean, I just really, really disapprove of that. 
Yeah, that sounds uh, pretty, re- pretty awful. <laughs> pretty and he awkward. did do that. Yeah. He did do that. And mm. I, I, it didn't sit well with me. But the, nice, the nicer one sure, to balance let's, it let's is when on. I was out of school. And actually, I was living in Portland because it has to do with Portland. And I don't know how, why we were corresponding at all. I have no memory of it. But I was struggling, and he sent me a check. Uh, with which to buy food. Wow. He sent me a check for $25, and I uh, went out and bought a used hardback copy of the Collective Poems of Yeats here in Portland. I remember that, that I spent the money on books. I figured he wouldn't mind. And we were just talking about books as food. That's true. So So this is all working out. (laughs) Yeah, books as food. He sent me me money for, for food, and I bought books with it. Yeah. Yeah. Today... No question, I'd buy food, not uh-huh. books. Wow, that's that's how life changes you. Yeah. Well, I wanna, I wanna, yeah. with your permission, I wanna take us on a digression. Okay. Because yeah. um, I shared a vignette last time we had a conversation on air that raised the possibility of two paths that we never took. So I would like to reshare the anecdote mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. and and just hear oh, your yeah. thoughts on the um, the things that you raised that we never pursued. Okay. So. Um, Last time you were here, I had just gone to a poetry reading of Mark Doty. And um, so when when he was going to do his reading, he was recounting um, that he's a huge lover of Walt Whitman mm-hmm. and that he, he had just picked up a secondhand copy of Leaves of Grass at a store to bring with him to the class he was teaching. And when he opened it, he discovered that a previous reader had written a lot in the margins. And at one point where Whitman asks, what is, gra- what is the grass? This reader wrote, probably in a snarky way, it's grass. And Doty recalls being really mad, but then with reflection realizes that this reader actually has a great faith in language, that the word grass corresponds directly and is sufficient in its description for the grass itself, mm-hmm. whereas poets, contrary to what people think, mm-hmm. find language mysterious and struggle with it. And Whitman needs hundreds of pages to write what grass is. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I brought this up last time, we we pursued this. Mm-hmm. But you had you'd mentioned um, the both... Buddhist story comes to mind. Did I the, the Buddhist? I want to hear that about this oh, okay. too. But I, yeah. you had mentioned about um, your love of Walt Whitman mm-hmm. and and asked if you should talk about the Whitman sampler. Oh yeah. And so I was curious about that, and then also your um, love of marginalia and your framed marginalia in your house. Oh yeah, so, I love marginalia. Yeah. Uh, I I love marginalia. Sometimes I buy books for the marginalia, or I cut marginalia out of old used books. Marginalia, and it's also silly. Your my own marginalia is ridiculous. If you go back and you look at te- uh, textbooks or they don't have to be textbooks that you had in college if you still have them and read those insane notes that you took in class about poems um and you read it and today i just laugh and i laugh and i laugh you know you have a word circle then a little line out symbol of you know or <laughs> you know right. notice how you know change of diction or yeah. and these wild taking taking notes and um Oh, marginalia is very, very funny. The marginalia I have framed in my home is a, the, the last page of one of the books of the Purgatorio. 
Dante. And it's, someone has written in it, I keep forgetting, this is Dante, and they've written, I keep forgetting, I, wait, I keep, I keep forgetting I'm with Katie, not Susan. <laughs> it's just like, That's great. And then they have underlined something in the text which actually vaguely connects to that. It's very, I just, that marginalia, you know, that you would have to write that down and remind yourself yeah. on Dante. So that, that is, uh, but that's so interesting. Um, what Mark said about grass, the word grass and how someone wrote it's grass and you, you, they probably were being snarky, but Mark can also interpret that in, in a, in a very intelligent way. It reminds me of the Buddhist anecdote, which is told again and again and again by many, many, many people of mountains and rivers. When I was young and I first began to study, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. After I had studied for some time, I came to understand that mountains were more than mountains and rivers were more than rivers. And after I had studied for a great long time, I came to see that mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. That's wonderful. And, and it's a, it, that's... You know, so I think Mark was thinking of that final stage where grass is grass. But there's that yeah. whole middle portion of life where, oh, what does grass stand for, you know? And, yeah. you know. And what is your, your yeah. Whitman relationship, your relationship uh, to Walt Whitman? Besides totally loving him, I mean, I love Walt Whitman. I had, an uh, when I was making this Whit Whitman sampler, which I'll describe to you, I, in order to make it, I had to read I, the everything he ever, every poem he ever wrote, like consecutively over a period, I don't know if it was two weeks or a month, and it was an overwhelming experience. I cannot tell you to sit and read everything. Mm. Uh, without periods of time intervening was just extraordinary. But I was making a, a Whitman sampler. Um, you know, I grew up, I, they still make Whitman sampler. It's a yellow box of, of candy, and you buy it in drugstores. Is this not ringing a bell? No. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> well, I grew up, and Whitman sampler, and I know they still sell them, it's um, a, a cardboard box of candy and you lift the lid, and there's different chocolates in small brown fluted paper shells beneath them. And then there's a guide printed so you know what you're getting. And it says Whitman Sampler, and it's an American confectionery staple. I mean, it was a staple. And my mother bought one box uh, a year for herself at holidays. She would, that's what, and it's not very good, but they still sell it. So um, I guess the conceit's kind of lost if you don't know what a Whitman sampler is, but I have a beautiful, beautiful uh, wooden box. It's about an inch high and 12 inches long. And it belonged to someone who worked in a laboratory. So there are slots for glass, wooden slots for glass slides, the old type that you would put under the, 
And then when you lift the lid, it has all the numbers so that the scientists can fill in what's on slide one, what's on slide two. Well, I found ink that didn't smear in every slide. Is, I wrote a line from Whitman. And then on the inside of the lid where there's the index, I write the poem that it's from. So there's like 100 slides, 100 lines, wow. and 100 poems that it's from. And on the top of the box, I have a friend who's a metalsmith, and she made a brass plaque and hammered into the brass plaque. It's the word Whitman sampler. So it's that a, sounds great. It's a Walt Whitman sampler based yeah. on the candy, the, 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 the Whitman, Whitman sampler. sampler. So I made that. Uh, I, I like to make these little artifacts. They're just around my home. That's all. I just... Well, you also mentioned in On Imagination, your book from Saraband, that you collect 19th century primers. Oh, yes, yes. What, tell us a little bit about that endeavor. Oh, everything you need to know is in those books. I mean, I see you. Do you see me? You know, here, some of them are funny and some are moving, but um, just the simplest phrases, here is a bird. I love them. I mm. love those early learning to read books. Oh, yeah. Well, how, how about um, we hear personalia and okay. uh, an outcast? All right. Two, two short, two short pieces. Ones. Personalia. When I was young, a fortune teller told me that an old woman who wanted to die had accidentally become lodged in my body. Slowly, over time, and taking great care in following esoteric instructions, including lavender baths and the ritual burial of keys in the backyard, I rid myself of her presence. Now I am an old woman who wants to die, and inside me is a lodged inside me is a young woman dying to live. I work on her. An outcast. <clears throat> if a poet who lived 200 or 2100 years ago, say Catullus or Coleridge, sprang to life to read a poem written last year, and in it the poet said, I was stoned. Either would assume the poet was an outcast, his body covered with tiny potholes from all the rocks the villagers had thrown at him. There would be surprise that the stoned poet was even still alive, just as the poet would be astonished Catullus or Coleridge had sprung to life again. And if the ancient went to the poet's house for a visit and was offered a cold beer and the light inside the refrigerator popped on, the ancient would drop dead all over again from a heart attack induced by the shock of electrical incomprehension. Well, that's how it is. The stars reach me. I see their light. Someone once explained to me that the stars are dead, but when I look up, I don't act as if suddenly hit. I act normally, as if I understood everything, and I never think of how cold it is 200 or 2100 miles out, nor do I think for a moment Catullus or Coleridge ever did, which means I think there is no difference between us, even if I have led you to believe there is. We've been listening to Mary Rufel read from her latest book from Wave Books, My Private Property. Um, so Mary sort of circle back to this idea of unification and, mm -hmm. and compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. um, what, sort of the central kernel of your book on imagination 
is that for you, imagination and thinking are not two different modes, Mm -hmm. but one mode. Mm -hmm. That anything that creates an image Mm -hmm. in the mind is by definition imaginative. So if we say the word tree and we, Mm -hmm. we... we see a, a tree in our mind's eye we're imagining. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit on, on well, that phenomenon? What you just said uh, reminded me, after I wrote this essay, uh, I, uh, I read the, a quote from Bachelard about Gaston Bachelard mm-hmm. about the imagination where he says the imagination does not form the image, it deforms the image. The imagination is a deforming. And I think I try to talk about that in this essay in showing the dark side of imagination. But when I think of it, the imagination as deforming, I think we're going right back to what we were talking about earlier when you when you read the Jory, Jory Graham. Graham, the Jory Graham. Um, the idea that we're, we're, there is this thing called reality and we are constantly playing with it <laughs> and changing it. And imagination does that. Um, and I am in love with the imagination. It is, it's been with me my whole life. And it has a great power of salvation, but it also is something I understand now to lift an eyebrow over. I mean, I see both sides. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if I address what you asked me to address. No, I, I think you just, did. Um, I mean, there's this. The, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, the imagination has two sides to it, you know. It can be a very, very scary thing. Um, it, and it's, it is powerful, but power itself, you know, there's another razor's edge, you know, oh, the power of self-realization, the power of self-empowerment, but, and we look at governmental power or we look at the power of one group of people over another, I mean, power itself is another dilemma all caught up in all of this. Do yeah. you, I mean, I'm remembering somewhat impartially mm-hmm. from On Imagination, you demonstrating the good and bad qualities of imagination using Shakespeare and Othello. Do you remember what you oh, said? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, what I said about that. Well, I mean, we certainly, the example I used was what a wonderful imagination Shakespeare possessed. Who would deny it that he could create among other characters, Othello and Iago, both fabulous imagination. But what about Othello's imagination? Not so good. Othello imagined that Desdemona was unfaithful to him, and he ends up killing himself. So there's an example of the imagination that gets carried away with itself and creates uh, terror and paranoia where where there is none. Yeah. And, you know, pin, people who are clinically psychotic or paranoid, they have very racy imaginations. And it makes their life hell. They can't live a normal life because 
because they think they're Napoleon or Jesus Christ or something? Right. Come on. I mean, you know, um, the, people who, you know, I'm sure that Donald Trump has an imagination. He imagines that he is all-powerful and that he's intelligent. And, you know, <laughs> we, don't, we won't go That's there. That's a powerful imagination. We won't go there. We won't go there. Yeah. So, so scattered throughout the book, my private property mm -hmm. is a, a type of writing that is different than everything else in the book. And those are your, mm -hmm. your color pieces where oh, you're, yes. you're looking at sadness yeah. through the lens yeah. of different colors. I'd be interested to hear yellow, okay. but I'd also just be interested also to hear about um, how these came to be. Well, you know, I, I just write. So they just got written. I didn't think about them. They got written. Although I think I did the first one. They're not in the order in which they were written, but I think I did. Uh, I wrote blue, and I thought, oh, okay, here's a little poem about blue. I'll stop there. But, you know, it's fun. So once I had blue, I had to keep going because it w it was fun. Yeah. Um, and these are clearly kind of prose poems. And I, I understand if there's an argument that they don't belong in here. Um, there also was a lot of... Uh, talk about whether they should be all together or spread out. And my editor and I decided to spread them out. But I have I know some people that are friends that have read the book and said, well, you know, Mary, why did you do that? They should have all been together. It bothered me. Huh. And then other people who said, oh, I liked how they were. I think they're monotonous together. I think that was my argument, that they were weak. It weakened them to be together. But Yellow, I'll find yellow here. They go. Yellow sadness is the surprise sadness. It is the sadness of naps and eggs, swans down, sachet powder, and moist towelettes. It is the citrus of sadness, and all things round and whole and dying like the sun possess this sadness, which is the sadness of the first place. It is the sadness of explosion and expansion a blast furnace in Duluth that rises over the night skyline to fall reflected in the waters of Lake Superior. It is a superior joy and a superior sadness, that of revolving doors and turnstiles. It is the confusing sadness of the never-ending and the evanescent. It is the sadness of the jester in every pack of cards, the sadness of a poet pointing to a flower and saying, what is that, when what that is is a violet. Yellow sadness is the ceiling fresco painted by Andrea Mantega in the Castillo di San Giorgiano in Mantova, Italy, in the 15th century, wherein we look up to see we are being looked down upon, looked down upon in laughter and mirth. It is the sadness of that. Well, it, it's. I mispronounced the Italian. Oh, <laughs> oh well. We'll forgive you. Yeah. Well, it seems to me like one of the keys of the book, not just the color pieces, but the book, perhaps the book as a whole, is that we don't, is something that we don't discover until the end. And that's this very small, unobtrusive author's note that sits quietly oh, below yeah. the acknowledgments. And it yeah. says, in each of the color pieces, <laughs> if you substitute the word happiness for the word sadness, nothing changes. And it made me think, that I think that you could say that's true about the whole collection. I know 
Ben Ratliff in his New York Times review, he, he suggests that if you don't read this book carefully and to the last word, you could underestimate it, take some of these pieces as jokes or only as jokes. And it feels like there's something about this, uh, almost like a tension that is in this collection between happiness and sadness, mm -hmm. like that they're on a knife's edge together. Yeah, yeah, as they are, as they always are. Yeah, I like that little author's note. Well, what what yeah. can we uh, expect from you next? Well, um, I suppose uh, a book of poems in the next couple of years because I'm basically collecting the un enough. uninvited ones. Yes, uh, that I could have, be a good title. I have the a, uninvited the ones. uninvited ones. I have enough <laughs> uninvited ones to make a book. Yeah. They're all uninvited, but I it's numerically there. Um, and then I'm working on. Um, well, again, it has to do with age. I'm just doing what I want to and what I feel like doing and um, not big projects, but I'm working on a book of um, a book of fragments. It's, uh, mm. I can describe it as a fake journal. I don't have time in life to keep a real journal, so I decided to keep a fake one. Um, it will be... Anecdotes, aphorisms, fragments, haiku, uh, it'll be just a real, real kind of pillow book. Like I'm working on a pillow book. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm not rushing it or anything. Um, and it will have hopefully a lot to do with bells. I'm with bells. bells. I think the theme is bells. Huh. But there's getting to be so much on bells that I might extract all the bell stuff and write a bell essay. You never know. You know, I thought that the bell would be the motif in yeah. this book, which is way, way out in the future. But there's just so much that I might end up pulling it, uh, writing an essay okay. on bells. On bells, yeah. Well, if you're willing, maybe we can finish today with a reading of Lucky. Oh, lucky. Okay, yeah. lucky. I thought you were going to say, like, The Bells by Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> we could yeah, end and there. And I'm reading all these uh, bell poems. <laughs> if you want to read that one. are so unpopular and considered in such poor taste, and I just love them. Tintinabulation. Yes, yes, that word. I like to write about that word. And, yeah, bells are amazing. Um, lucky. While I was sleeping, God broke into my heart and nailed up pictures of himself in different clothes. He asked me which one I liked the best, but it was apparent I was to like them all. I didn't like any of them. But there was one, a white robe with a floating blue halo above the neckline where his face should be, and I thought to that picture I could at least express my fear. So I said I liked it. Immediately, he said I had no taste. I thought I would wake then and there with a bad taste in my mouth and cho choose for the day brightly colored clothing of the kind I would never wear, but it didn't happen. I slept dreamless as a baby, and when I awoke, I was naked as a baby and alone and afraid. It was so great having you back on the show, Mary. Oh, thank you so much, David, for having me. I love being here. It's a, it's a great show, and it's a, a great city.
And I think that the city's probably less grumpy. Are you less grumpy, Portland? Come on, <laughs> admit it. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> We've been listening to Mary Rufel uh, read and talk about her latest two books, On Imagination from Saraband and My Private Property from Wave Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.